And we're back. Welcome to episode 177 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, uh, back from hiatus, uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome. Thanks for uh, uh, sticking it out uh, through the hiatus. Uh, uh, it's past Labor Day, and we are uh, eager to get going. Uh, so thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, our interview today is going to be with Professor Michael Minnelli, who is the co-founder of ZY. Zen, uh, uh, who will be talking about blockchain and distributed ledgers and a whole host of related technologies. Uh, uh, we're also joined for our news roundup by Alan Cohn, formerly the, the Assistant Secretary for Strategy at DHS, now of counsel uh, at Steptoe, by Maury Schenk, who's our former managing partner in London and who still advises us on European technology and cybersecurity issues, uh, and by Paul Rosenzweig, uh, founder of Red Branch Consulting and former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at DHS, the number two when I was there, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, this was a challenge. We had to kind of figure out what the big stories of August were, as opposed to the big stories of the last week. Uh, uh, I thought maybe Kaspersky was the big story, the one that seemed to have legs through the month. Uh, many uh, uh, intelligence officials saying uh, we wouldn't use it, we wouldn't let our family use it. Gene uh, um, uh, Shaheen has uh, uh, proposed an amendment to the uh, Defense Authorization Act saying uh, DOD will not use this. She wrote an op-ed uh, um, about this uh, for the New York Times. Uh, uh, Paul, what do you make of it? Well, this certainly wasn't the summer of love, let's put it that way. Um, look, as a matter of risk management, I agree. Uh, I wouldn't advise any client I had to use Kaspersky, not because I'm certain that they're bad, but because I'm certain that I'm not certain and that there are plenty of other places that I have a much greater degree of confidence about. Uh, that is what I take the intelligence community to be saying, and it seems to me, it's just plain common sense. There's a miasma of anti-Russian tit-for-tat, you were mess with our election, we'll mess with you boys to it as well. Uh, that makes it all the more attractive to a lot of people. But fundamentally, uh, this is a, a sensible uh, set of recommendations. All that having been said, there's... Not a lot of fire actually there. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be defending Kaspersky at all because I would make a recommendation against them. But I, you know, for a, all the looking that's gone into it, I'm still waiting for, for the forensic analysis from FireEye or Cloudflare or, or somebody that says, Bam, we caught you. Here's the, here's the back door you put in and it hasn't come up yet. Yeah, and Eugene Kaspersky has said, you want, you want the source code? You can have the source code, uh, which of course is only a partial answer. Yeah, uh, yeah, now that doesn't suggest, work. <laughs> it suggests that he's not worried that the source code is going to show a problem, but, uh, um, you know, uh, Senator Shaheen said something and I actually called her press office and asked them to, give us the source of it. She said, well, all of Kaspersky's servers are in Russia. And that's actually a big deal, because if the servers are all in Russia, all the data that they're collecting, and they've got, uh, um, you know, data collection sensors in every 
computer that they uh, provide uh, protection for, all that data is going back to Russia. All the access data is going back to Russia. And, um, you know, even if Russia had a uh, civil liberty system that was equivalent to the U.S., uh, um, if the data is stored in Russia, the FSB can get it, uh, and uh, uh, and they can tell Kaspersky not to talk about it. Um, uh, the reason I asked Senator Shaheen and her staff, uh, who I, I will say have been utterly unresponsive, uh, is I wondered what the source was for that statement, because uh, she, she provided a bunch of links, but not to that statement. Uh, um, and so it makes me wonder whether it's either a classified fact that she's improperly disclosing or uh, whether she doesn't actually have as much um, support for that proposition as uh, she let on in the op-ed. Well, I noticed it as well, and it would certainly be troubling. It would cer- it would be much the same as saying um, that uh, a, a French company had all of its servers in France. Uh, the data localization rules today are designed to give sovereigns control over data that is stored domestically. And if Kaspersky meets that criteria, it would be a problem. I, I, if you find out the answer, let me know. Uh, well, uh, Senator Shaheen uh, and your press office, give us a call. Uh, send us email at stepto cyber, at the uh, cyber law podcast at stepto.com. Uh, although maybe, you know, you no, I, <laughs> I was just going to say, Stuart, maybe she's just being unresponsive to you. Uh, <laughs> that uh, could easily be. Yes, uh, exactly. You, you know, the other thing that's I'm interesting. Sure Tom Cotton would have been yeah. more responsive. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, uh, you know, and, and uh, I don't know. I'm kind of happy to see the miasma of anti-Russia kind of activity in the in the administration. But I do think it's also an interesting example of of the kind of the name and shame approach uh, for addressing uh, corporate issues of concern. And it does point up some of the limitations that the administration actually has in terms of other tools at its disposal yeah, to they, actually this limit. This is just a job the on because they have no way to tell people not to do this. Yeah. Uh, and in fact... I mean, th- th- there is a problem with Kaspersky is that you could be using it and not know it because they are integrating themselves into other people's software. Uh, and uh, uh, what's interesting is none of the people who have integrated it into their software have been outed as part of this process, uh, uh, which suggests maybe they have better Washington reps than uh, Kaspersky does. <laughs> so, so since we're lawyers talking about law, um, let me pose a hypothetical uh, what if the U.S. government wanted to affirmatively put Kaspersky on a blacklist of some sort based upon uh, classified information? Yeah, no American person who gets any money from the government shall use Kaspersky, period, full stop, end of story. Um, surely we would have some kind of due process trouble with with yeah. Kaspersky's inability to, to challenge that, even if we didn't believe them. And yet, um, this is... The moral equivalent of it, right? I mean, now if you use Kaspersky, even though Admiral Rogers has told you not to, you're, that's almost prima facie negligence on your part. Right. Um, and if something bad happens down the road, you're going to pay through the nose. So I kind of, yeah, they're, they're sidling very up close to a place where they're calling balls and strikes, calling winners and losers, which is a very un-American economic 
response, notwithstanding that Kaspersky deserves it. They, right. they, should, they should do this, but I agree with you that there has to be some process because, you know, I've worked with the intelligence community and they're very good, but they get things wrong. Mm-hmm. I, and uh, and then one, once things become part of the, the macro that you just, you know, that attach to Kaspersky's name, uh, it doesn't get necessarily reevaluated and you don't have the opportunity if you're Kaspersky to tell them why their uh, assumptions are wrong. Um, so, yeah, we need a mechanism for at least exposing these kinds of things to some sort of challenge or uh, evaluation. Uh, though God knows I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in the courts, but I, I do think <laughs> the idea of letting um, uh, Kaspersky say, you know, give us some idea what you think we did. Uh, well, I, was, sense. I do have to say I'm, I'm kind of I'm surprised uh, that you are uh, jumping on the bandwagon of, of due processizing our national security decision making. Yeah, but it does that. it does seem of a piece with the decisions we've seen around the CFIUS process or around um, uh, the no fly list. How do you give people due process around classified decision making without? allowing them the opportunity to get into the classified decision-making. And it wouldn't be surprising to see this go down that same kind of kind of road. So, so you know, I, speaking as somebody who would, would handle a case like that, it, it wouldn't be hard to provide an unclassified summary of the things that you think are most troubling about a product. Uh, and then to say, that's it. That's all we're giving you. I, uh, you can tell us anything you want now that you know what the charges are. Uh, but it's very hard for people to respond to charges that, that haven't become reasonably concrete. Um, speaking of which, uh, the Chinese are on the receiving end of this as well. Uh, although it's gotten less publicity perhaps because, um, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe uh, DJI has made less of it. Uh, DJI, the Chinese drone maker that makes all the, the kind of cheap uh, uh, drones that everybody buys, uh, uh, has been banned from the Defense Department. Uh, uh, and uh, in a you know, kind of strikingly aggressive ban, which said, uh, uh, we want you to cease all use, uninstall all applications, and remove all batteries and storage media from your, uh, uh, your drones, uh, if they're DJI drones. Uh, that's pretty serious. Yeah, and this, this is not just a kind of a statement of policy coming out from headquarters based on some you know, the inference of, of things. This is research done by both the Army and the Navy uh, and the Deputy Chief of Staff of the Army for, you know, operations and, and plans coming out and saying the U.S. Army will not use these drones and it will not use these drones for cybersecurity reasons because we are concerned about the cyber vulnerability of the drones and what information may be collected, stored, and then sent who knows where? Well, actually, I think we do. Windows, I think it's all stored in China, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, um, without much notice to users. That's just if if you uh, if you use their cloud, it's all in China. So uh, it would be very easy for this stuff to get sent back and stored for a long time. That probably explains why you haven't heard much from DJI. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is highly specific, clearly based upon actual forensic research into the hardware or the software that exposed a real vulnerability. And the reason DJI hasn't complained is because they don't have 
any of Kaspersky's possible responses. We're not guilty. Yeah. They are guilty. And no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that, that, that's, that's what I infer from this. And, you know, uh, I infer it. I don't know it. <laughs> just, just to be clear, I'm a lawyer, not a, not a judge. Uh, but, but clearly that seems to be the case. But it's an interesting case also of the reason soldiers use DJI drones is because they work and because they like right. them better and because they're useful for their operational mission. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, again, it's an interesting place where that, where number one, that runs a detention with things that we're discovering in the lab. But number two, it's not as if the army is issuing, you know, these in all these cases. Um, and so it's a, it is a, it's a, it's a more pervasive challenge than we see just with a single contractor being identified as problematic in terms of back-end installations that, you know, the, 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 the IT staff is going to have to wrestle with. It does strike me that this is a good case for American IP theft. <laughs> uh, maybe, but I think whoever uh, built the drones for the United States would be at risk of uh, uh, lawsuits. Uh, um, all right. That was a joke, yeah, too. Okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, I, I don't think it's a crime to encourage IP theft, uh, uh, but uh, just as well. Uh, uh, so um, speaking of IP theft uh, and companies that have gone surprisingly silent. Apple uh, uh, lost control of its secure enclave processor operating system, essentially. Uh, it, it was uh, decrypted by uh, uh, by an uh, anonymous hacker who's posted it uh, uh, and who's made it possible not to not to actually hack the processor, but this this secure enclave is where all the really important security, including the stuff that uh, uh, the FBI wanted to get access to, is stored. It's stored in a uh, fashion so that it can be used uh, to sign or to encrypt uh, uh, information. Um, and no one knew what the operating system was. No one knew what the security features that were built into it were. Now it's going to be possible to uh, to dig out the operating system, uh, uh, read it, and then figure out uh, whether there are any holes in it. Uh, and it's got to be pretty small, so it wouldn't surprise me if there were holes in it. It's stage one of, of a two-stage problem, right? Uh, this is exposure, and Apple was more or less practicing security by obscurity. Mm, the obscurity has been ripped from them. Um, yep, I assume they'll fix it. Or try and refix it, but I, I, you know, I, I don't I know think how. They, I think they can re-encrypt the, uh, the the firmware, but I, rewriting the firmware is hard, right? And, and um, but maybe they will now go through it and and ask whether there are security features that they ought to be, build into it. Uh, but at least we will not hear Apple aficionados uh, in the Apple versus FBI fight saying, "Well, we can't trust the FBI to keep a secret, so we have to leave the secret with Apple." Uh, we can't trust Apple to keep the secret either. Um, a, Tim Cook also made news. Uh, uh, he explained very clearly why his decision to throw VPN apps out of the China App Store for iPhone uh, uh, was not uh, caving into uh, a Big Brother and was completely different from uh, their fight with the FBI. Uh, uh, the apps... The VPN apps are really designed to make sure that you can get past the Great Firewall and download things like um, the New York Times. Uh, I, and lots of them were sold on the uh, 
uh, on the App Store. Uh, China now has a rule that says uh, you have to register these and they will have to approve the VPNs, which means they basically have to build a backdoor into them. Um, a, and they uh, came up with a list of unapproved VPN apps that um, Apple summarily dismissed from their uh, their App Store. And uh, Tim Cook says, uh, let's see... Uh, um, in this particular case, we're hopeful that over time the restrictions we're seeing are loosened because innovation really quite requires freedom to collaborate and communicate. Uh, uh, some folks have tried to link it to the U.S. situation last year. They're very different. In the case of the U.S., the law in the U.S. supported us, Apple. Uh, where he gets that, uh, I just ipsy dixit, I think, uh, uh, it was very clear, <clears throat> according to, uh, to Tim Cook. In the case of China, though, the law is very clear there. Uh, 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 like we would if the U.S. changed the law here, we have to abide by them in both cases. So he's basically saying, uh, I'm a better lawyer than the, uh, the FBI, uh, and I know that uh, it, what we were asked to do wasn't consistent with law in the United States, and uh, I've had it explained to me clearly by Chinese lawyers or the Chinese government that their law is clear, and so I have to do it. Uh, uh, but he didn't fight them, uh, whereas in uh, the United States, he said, well, I have a different view of the law, and I'm going to fight. Uh, uh, and so I'm not sure he has helped himself with that explanation. Well, uh, free speech for me, but not for thee, right? Um, uh, not only was he a smarter lawyer than the FBI in the United States, of course, he was smarter than the magistrate judge before whom he lost the case initially. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, let's I, – I don't want to say let's be fair to Apple, but let's be clearer, right? In the United States, the avenue for him to resist is a lawful one that doesn't cost him publicly anything. Um, in fact, it gains him adherence. In China, the avenue to resist, if there was one at all, costs is all cost and no benefit at all. Oh, if this he, is if, this if, is. If he had just said, yes, yeah, we can't afford to lose that market, and we don't think we'll lose the market if we screw the FBI. Uh, so that's we did it because in both cases it's good for our market. Uh, if he had said that, uh, you'd have been much more credit for honesty. But he wants to don this mantle of virtue and parade around in it, uh, and that's that's sort of what's galling is that uh, the the notion that. Um, Apple has values and it lives up to its values and that's really what motivates it. All that crap is really what's hard to take. Well, you know, I, I think I, I'm a little more sympathetic to them. Uh, at <laughs> well, that would not be hard. No, no. It, well, at least in part because I'm not sure that they're wrong as a matter of uh, technology policy here in the United States. I am sure that they're wrong to get to take the VPN apps out in China. Uh, you know, so... Uh, so I, I give him a half of a loaf or a quarter of a loaf rather than the than the full no loaf baker baker sale. <laughs> All right, um, Internet of Things security, uh, and that certainly ties to things like uh, DJI uh, and their drones. Uh, um, there's a bill that was sort of semi-negotiated uh, uh, industry and uh, policymakers and now has been introduced uh, uh, called the IoT Security Act, essentially. Uh, uh, Paul, what does it do and is it a good idea? 
It's a pretty good idea, actually. Uh, you know, since, since we live in, in the anti-regulatory world here where we don't want the government to tell us what to do, the only way the government can actually influence better behavior is by asking for it itself. If you want to sell to me, you're going to be more secure. Um, and that's what the bill would do is, is require the OMB to put together a list of good standards, um, for IoT security. Um, the interesting question is, why is it necessary? OMB could do that right now without even um, uh, so much as a buy or leave. Oh, but it, but it wouldn't have Senator Wyden's name on it. Well, that's a different question altogether. But but I, I think that using the government's purchasing power as a driver for positive security changes probably the best, least intrusive way the government can act. The other piece of the bill, by the way, that do, would, does require legislation was it would be that it would provide a safe harbor for uh, white hat security researchers to fiddle around with the security of IoT devices. They now operate under a bit of a cloud, and, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that researchers are, are a bit freaked out by that. So that piece requ- does require legislation. So I saw that. It, it, it creates a little safe harbor from the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, if you disclose uh, uh, appropriately. doesn't create a, a safe harbor from uh, uh, libel actions. Uh, and, uh, of course, that's the most aggressive use of the law to shut down security researchers that we've seen is that uh, Abbott Labs sued MedSec for uh, um, essentially – um, publishing a security report that uh, Abbott Labs said at the time was false uh, and has since recalled all the uh, equipment, if I remember right. Uh, the uh, falsely accused equipment? Yes, exactly, yes. exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, uh, they didn't sue under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. They sued for libel and, you know, disparagement of the, of the trademark. Uh, that would require, obviously, preemption of all state laws. And, and is a much heavier lift. Yep. Yeah, I think the incremental approach here might be the, the better one. Well, I, look, criminal versus losing money, you know, I think that actually the CFAA is, is a bit more of an interim. Yeah. If you, if you think the government might, might, yeah, might actually do it to you. But, but it is also, you know, we were, we were talking about before with respect to Kaspersky and, uh, it, it again, although yes, OMB could do it. Uh, there are things that, that the administration, any administration sensibly can do that come with the risk of legal challenges and, and other things of that nature that, that are, you know, better backed up by legislation. But it just shows again the limitations of the toolbox, mm-hmm. um, and the utility of the government's purchasing power as a lever for influencing better practices in cybersecurity. Plus, if you threw out every law Congress passed that the administration could have done or already was doing, it, you know, the last six Congresses would have nothing to show for their appearance on, in Washington. I, I think many of our listeners just saw a moment of Nirvana flash in front of their eyes. <laughs> so, uh, let's, let's, Cut across the Atlantic to uh, uh, the UK, which has announced, I guess, its plan for how to do data protection after Brexit. Uh, Maury, uh, what's the the headline here? Well, there were a couple of reports that came out in August. One from the government, which means something a little different over here than it says in the US. That's the uh, coalition, um, which is the minority conservative coalition. Now that negotiating Brexit and they issued a paper on their policy and data protection in the Brexit process and the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, which is more like the U.S. Department of Commerce or something like that, 
um, also came out with a paper on the, they'll be responsible for the legislation on this. Um, the news is, is hopeful. It's less contentious than most of the Brexit process and basically says they'll implement the uh, EU general data protection regulation. They will do the things that are needed to make that fit with the uh, UK being separate from uh, the EU and a few other data transfer friendly things. So it's a much less contentious methods than we've seen in other parts of the Brexit process and, and hopeful for non-interruption of data flows. Isn't, isn't that a little like saying that the uh, ceremony on the USS Missouri was less contentious than World War II? Is, is there anything that the UK is going to do that isn't just accepting uh, all of the, uh, the EU's terms? Well, I mean, um, that remains to be seen. There's a lot of very hot rhetoric going on at the moment um, on issues like movement of people, the Northern Ireland uh, Ireland border, um, and uh, one other which escapes my mind at the moment, but, uh, and, and, you know, and name calling. And so nobody cares about, I mean, the data protection is a consensus issue, but I'm not sure where this is going to come out, um, whether the whole process falls apart, whether somehow we go back on Brexit. I think there's a lot of unpredictable stuff yet to come. Yeah, I, I, it, it would be easy. I guess hard Brexit means uh, at the end of two years, they just cut the ties and say, here's the tariff for uh, uh, British goods. Uh, uh, and, and that is, yeah, that, that's uh, the default. No that's a horrible result for the, um, for the EU and a disastrous result for the UK. So hopefully it, it won't happen. Yeah, well, um, uh, having spent the last uh, several years in Washington, uh, um, you know, you cannot rule out the possibility that everybody's default will turn out to be uh, uh, the case, uh, even if it's disastrous. Uh, okay, um, the... The, the story that I thought was the most fun, maybe not the most significant uh, of the of the month, was um, the introduction of malware into DNA, uh, and then the use of that malware to compromise the machine that was reading the uh, the DNA. Uh, uh, I I don't know how significant this really turns out to be, but it was a great story. It was lots of fun. You know, it, I, I I'm with you, Stuart. Um. I actually was so taken by it that I sent a copy of it to a couple of my my best computer researcher friends who who teach this stuff, and they said uh, basically proof of concept, but not a real problem, which is which is about. But but here's the story. You know, uh, computers are nothing more than systems that follow orders and directions, and DNA is nothing more than a system or series of orders and directions. Normally to a gene in order to, to create a human being. Um, but what these researchers figured out was that if they put a series of malware-like orders and directions into a strand of DNA that was going to be analyzed by a computer, that malware could, uh, cause the computer to malfunction in ways that were inappropriate. And they, they, they did it at a proof of concepts, uh, level and demonstrated that in fact, this syllogism works. I think it's just 
another example of how little we know about what the future really is going to hold for us. It yeah. blew my mind. I, it is it is fun. It's because it, you can imagine circumstances in which people uh, create a um, an organism whose DNA they do not want read, uh, which then could resist uh, uh, analysis in surprisingly creative ways. I, I, I actually I'll go the other way. Imagine a future in which human and computer interfaces are bioengineered inside of you, and I maliciously uh, program into uh, the DNA strand of a piece of beef that you're about to eat a code that disrupts your your computer bio interface. Isn't this, Sorry. A, isn't, this isn't this a little like what what viruses actually do? Viruses yes, in, exactly intrude into our uh, cells and get incorporated into our DNA. So we've got all these dead viruses that are part of our DNA now, part of the junk DNA, but still they're there. Yeah, for those listeners who are freaking out right now, don't. It's not going to happen. No, tomorrow. This, they, they had they had to, they had to introduce the infirmity into the machine mm-hmm. first, and then write code that would actually play on the infirmity. So it was it was utterly um, uh, artificial, but still uh, a fun proof of concept. Okay, quick uh, stuff. Election hacking is still making the news. People suggesting that maybe the um, Russians uh, either did or should have found ways to create long lines in. In, uh, jurisdictions that were favorable to uh, Hillary Clinton uh, uh, by hacking not the uh, the vote but the, um, the the software that people use to read the vote and to uh, analyze uh, results and to administer the polls. Um, uh, Alan, uh, um, uh, well, first I should say this is uh, a teaser. We are going to have for our our fans. We're going to have our first in-person cyber law podcast uh, I, so, where we invite anybody who wants to come to the firm. Uh, November 7, we're going to be talking, that's election day, and we're going to be talking about election security issues. Uh, uh, so um, a, if you're interested in coming and God help you seeing what we look like, uh, uh, or at least uh, uh, having a chance to ask us questions, uh, uh, it's going to be in the evening or the afternoon uh, um, on November 7. If you want to make sure you have a seat, I'm sure, I think we'll have room for everybody, but if you want to make sure you have a seat, send a note to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com saying, I want to come November 7, and then we'll just keep a list of the people who have um, uh, thought to RSVP in advance, and we'll make sure that they get priority in seating. Uh, so, Alan, uh, anything new in the uh, election uh, uh, hacking story in the New York Times? Yeah, this was an interesting uh, kind of look at different angle at the election hacking issue rather than than uh, a, a question that the New York Times kind of uh, story about tr- uh, Russian efforts to manipulate manipulate the vote this was really aimed at was there a Russian effort to manipulate the voter eligibility logs right. and specifically um, the electronic versions of them that were kept but that were that were used by um, uh, by poll workers, election workers on election day uh, in seven different states, uh, and the Times focused specifically on um, North Carolina uh, and on Durham County, where there were a lot 
of problems. Now, um, so on the one hand, uh, there was plenty of reporting and other stories about how the North Carolina officials managed to gum this up all by themselves without anybody's mm-hmm. help. Um, but it was based on uh, some inferences taken from uh, a classified NSA report that was leaked to The Intercept uh, that said that Russian intelligence had hacked into the Florida-based company that produced these voter, uh, these e-roll books um, uh, as early as August 2016. Um, now, that same company provided the books to uh, to seven states. Um, only North Carolina and some areas of Virginia seem to experience larger problems from that. But um, it did it, it did it did tie that link together of an actual finding from the intelligence community with uh, an actual area of problems of software glitches that interfered with uh, with activity on election day. And it and uh, so an interesting, different twist on the story. Uh, hard to see how you get to cause and effect at the end of the day, but it, but an interesting story nonetheless. I I I, I think that's right. I I have to say I you know I'm so used to uh, my friends on the left uh, just raising their eyebrows and looking at me askance when I suggest the Russians might do something bad to us. You know, oh, it's uh, not only know. them. <clears throat> you know, it's usually other reasons. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's so much fun to have the entire Democratic Party on my side when I say, you know, you really can't trust the Russians. Uh, um, uh, if they could only say the same. Of, uh, about the Chinese, we'd we'd be in agreement ninety percent of the time. Okay, um, three other things. Maersk announced that it lost three hundred million dollars because of not Petya and the massive uh, problems it had, which you know is astonishing. That's the biggest loss anybody's had uh, as a result of, or the, at least acknowledged as a result of a, a computer hacking uh, uh, escapade. Uh, uh, and striking that only a few companies, you know, it makes you wonder if these companies have really outed themselves as having bad security. Yeah, um, uh, so uh, it was a it was a striking note and uh, uh, one that maybe it's a little ho- hopeful that uh, there were fewer U.S. Companies Companies and more does it, or does it mean that they're more honest no, about uh, their losses? You, you, had, you had no choice. You're, if your ships are just floating there and they can't <laughs> unload, you've yeah. got to admit it. So, okay, Cyber Command is getting elevated. Uh, I, I, I do not understand why there isn't a meme uh, from the Playtex Crush Your Heart bra. They're going to be uh, lift and separate. Uh, oh. <laughs> Oh, you didn't do that. I did, I did. Okay. Uh, And um, uh, the U.S. has been designated as adequate for data protection uh, by Colombia, a wonderful step forward for our international reputation. Let me stop there because we are way over and uh, we want to get to uh, uh, Mike Minnelli, a... Mike is a, uh, as I said, the chairman of um, uh, Z. You know, I, I have it two ways here. Um, is it Z Yen or Z Y Zen? Yeah, Z Yen. Z Yen. Okay. Uh, well, I've been misled by my show notes. I apologize. Uh, so ZN, which is a think tank, does uh, uh, venture uh, uh, work as well in the city of London. Uh, he's 
uh, been involved with distributed ledgers, which are part of the uh, technology that uh, Bitcoin Bitcoin and blockchain facilitate uh, um, before there was Bitcoin and blockchain uh, blockchain, uh, since 1995. Uh, uh, Alderman in the city of London, I love that, um, and a professor at Gresham College. Uh, uh, Mike, welcome. I'm going to ask Maury and Alan, who know blockchain better than I, to carry the interview, but uh, we're delighted to have you. So I... Stuart, I probably don't know blockchain quite as well as Alan does, and fortunately he's going to jump in later, but I do know Michael very well. I met Michael not long after I came to London 16 and a half years ago, and it's a real pleasure to have him here in the London office for this interview. Um, thanks for joining us today to talk about blockchain. Before we dive into the detail, maybe you could help our listeners who might not have listened to our previous blockchain podcast, although we hope they did with it few definitions. Can you explain public and private blockchains and permission and permissionless blockchains? Thank you, Maury. I'd love to. And uh, first, may I say, uh, Stuart, uh, Paul, Maury Allen, thank you very much for having me on your program. Uh, we should have a bit of fun. Yes, uh, the terminology is evolving. Let's be frank. It's a, a Bitcoin has brought into prominence a whole host of technologies, which I think people in the computer programming era had taken for granted and it's not particularly exciting and it's given them a whole new lease of life. So I prefer the term mutual distributed ledger as opposed to blockchain uh, because I think it describes a wider field than just the ledgers that are being used by the cryptocurrencies. And it also says what it does. It's a ledger that's immutable, that can't be changed. It's distributed amongst numerous computers, and it's mutual in that people are working together on trying to keep a common record. Um, why is it important? Well, it's important because it solves a very old problem, which is, the problem of having central third parties. Uh, since the time of the Sumerians, we've had central third parties. Uh, when A wants to tra- uh, transact something with B, they appoint a central third party C. And C typically keeps a ledger. Uh, Maury has given account of Michael, uh, and Alan has approved that transfer. And this is how we've worked for years. And these ledgers started off as cuneiform tablets. We had tally sticks. We had paper ledgers. And in the 1970s, we had databases. So these are now really just multi-organizational databases with a super audit trail. That's what makes them uh, so interesting and in some ways so boring. Uh, they're there to hold a permanent record. They're there to safeguard that record. And a lot of the furore and interest is in how do we add new records to this ledger. And some of the terms involved in the space, um, public and private, uh, that typically means can people go to this and see what's happening there or is it hidden? Uh, permissionless and permissioned is a very recent term. It only popped up about two years ago in a blog by Richard Gendel Brown, uh, and this means effectively who's allowed to participate. And I would even add to this the terms opaque versus transparent. So can I look at the ledger? Yes, you can, but everything's encrypted. You don't understand what's there, uh, or is it actually fully transparent? So we're seeing uh, a, a lot of interest in the space, and I think we'll get on later in this conversation the areas of smart ledgers, which is where we start putting pieces of code into the ledger, and the ledger itself becomes an active computer element. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. So you and ZN have written or been associated with a lot of publications about mutual distributed ledgers. And to start with, I'd like to discuss a recent report from your Long Finance Initiative, which was published this July, July called Responsibility Without Power, the governance of mutual distributed ledgers, a.k.a. blockchain. Since this is a legal podcast, can you tell us 
in your view, how much of blockchain or, or MDL governance is about legal regulation and how much is about private agreement, and whether you expect that to change, change over time? Thank you. The interesting area here is that word mutual. Uh, so if we look at like a commons, we, we on the one hand, everybody owns it, and on the other hand, nobody owns it. And so we often see this tragedy of the commons. And as you look at these distributed ledgers, which are shared between multiple organizations, but one can anticipate many of the same problems we have on other commons, whether those are the oceans uh, or grazing sheep or, or the quality of the air. Um, we were intrigued by, I think, two incidents. Uh, in April 2016, Ethereum had a, a noted problem with something called the DAO, a hacking attack, which stripped about uh, 50 million out of it. And I'm not into it, but what was interesting there was the response of the Ethereum community. They were faced with the genuine paradox. Do we follow what the contracts say and how the code works. So is it, are we going to let the code rule, tyranny of the code, if you will, or are we going to uh, overrule this and roll back the transaction to do what we think is the community is fair? So that's sort of tyranny of the majority. In the end, they went with sort of tyranny of the minority. A minority of the people participating it had a majority vote, and they rolled back. Now, at first you say, well, they were obviously trying to be fair, but they had no governance structures here. And when they tried to be fair, you then say, well, hang on a minute. Are you going to object to future deals with Colombia? Are you going to object to future deals in tobacco? Are you going to object to the fur trade? Um, these all may be worthwhile things, but if I've got a ledger that's supposed to be immutable, do I want people able to overturn it historically? The second incident uh, occurred uh, quite recently, in fact, early last month, but was presaged, and this was the forking of Bitcoin. Here we had a slightly different problem. We had a limit to the technology, but no agreed path for updating it. And again, what we've seen in both cases is that these forks have resulted in the coins themselves splitting. So we still have Ether and Ethereum, but we also have Ethereum Classic pursuing the pre-fork strain. And we also have Bitcoin uh, moving on, but also Bitcoin Cash uh, holding, holding the old fork. Now, it's not unusual, though, to have in the IT world governance uh, being kind of thrown to the winds. And I'll give you two very obvious examples. One is the entire TCPIP framework that we work on. I expect you to transit my packets, etc. And in fact, to some degree, email, where we're all using shareware. Uh, nobody's really paying for the system, but our genuine contributions to it uh, keep the system going. I know that's not a pure example, uh, but it is interesting. So from a legal perspective, in terms of legal regulation, because these things span borders and because they, they fall into that very interesting hard infrastructure of the Internet and the web, I find it likely that we're going to find other structures ruling long before legal, nationally regulated structures. A good example of uh, our thinking on this, I think, would be uh, we brought out a paper um, with, uh, with Vinay Gupta and a number of others on, on a subject called Materium, M-A-T-T-E-R-E-U-M, what we were postulating there was the idea that we would look to industries like shipping, where we have an international structure that seems to work fairly well. There are legal things underpinning it, but internationally we're there on kind of the law of the sea. Um, Materium postulates that we would see an international standardization of ledgers working on, for example, the use of our uh, expert determination, arbitration, and mediation in preference to waiting for national legislation to catch up. So I think there's a lot to go here. I think the lawyers have a tremendous amount to contribute, but I certainly see it as a mixed mode between commercial reality 
and what we can expect the law to do in the near term. I hear you talking about sort of three levels of governance. There's the community governance. There's what you described as the code governance, which is lawyers we might think of as contracts. You know, it's what what is agreed among the community, which has a legal dimension to it. I mean, you could enforce it as contract, arguably. Maybe some people will try to do so. And then third, the legal regulatory dimension, where a law is cast that says blockchain must work this way, which you're saying maybe some distance off, although we'll get onto initial coin offerings later. Uh, there is some talk of security regulation already. Do you, uh, you agree with that? I definitely agree with you, you, the three layers that you proposed. And in fact, we, we spoke in the uh, report about three levels as well, in a way, the, the basic architecture, which I think refers to that, that underlying code, uh, the accountability in it, and what are we going to see in terms of uh, people, for example, offering indemnity. If I put data let's say, on your identity system, um, you rely, uh, sorry, third party relies upon it, is this Mori, turns out I did a sloppy job. Where's the indemnity there? What, what, what obligation do I have? What duty of care do I have to third party that I don't know or had no transactions with? Um, I think we'll be seeing some interesting insurance structures on that, things like indemnity insurance for these type of applications where businesses need to work together. But that will conflict immediately with a regulatory regime, for example, in AML KYC, that comes in with swinging fines based on a single violated instance. So you've got no ability to turn that into a risk-reward equation. But I think we're going to see some interesting problems here. And our third level is then very much the action. Where can I take action against the third party and how, particularly if this is a distributed global system? And I'm not looking at that I am in shipping a particular incident. Uh, my ship hit your ship. Uh, we, we can deal with it. But there was a systemic shipping problem that I failed to fix and thousands of ships around the world are affected. How do people get at me? Doesn't that really... Topics we could do a whole podcast. Insurance, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, though, um, sorry for interrupting, is that it does go to the question that you were uh, that you were alluding to uh, when you were discussing the challenges of governance relating to Ethereum and to Bitcoin is that in a sense, the question of the, of the, the neck to grab. And it's hard to, to think about uh, that blockchain is very much at its root, uh, you know, a commons, as you noted, which means that by design, it's not supposed to have next to grab. Um, it is a, it is a distributed protocol that exists for people to transact on or to build applications on. Now, once they uh, devise particular applications around, uh, what, if you're alluding to telemetry or to identity and know your customer, um, then there can be questions of, well, that's the neck to grab because that person coded it wrong. Um, but in terms of, of how we got there, you know, but the general question, uh, it's much more like, as you were explaining the Ethereum and the DAO, there were people who programmed the DAO. Um, they're the same people who the SEC just decided not to go after uh, in their investigative report, uh, the, the folks behind the company Slocket. Um, but in each of those instances, it was really the governance of the commons that was wrestled with uh, rather than shouldn't we just hold the Slocket guys responsible. And so I'm wondering if that, that again, requires a different way of thinking about um, how do you allocate questions of indemnity or action um, for the underlying protocol. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I, I could see a, a few ways in which this might evolve. I'll, I'll give one evolution and one point, I think, to your comment there. I mean, first is on evolution. 
once you strip away the mining and look at many of these applications, and I, I know there'll be people in the audience who won't like this, you're really talking about data logging. Uh, we just conducted a trial with the National Physical Laboratory here on data logging. We've hit uh, about 25 billion transactions a day, and they agree that we could hit about a trillion transactions per day on a rig. Uh, but you're looking at Bitcoin at the moment at a few hundred thousand transactions per day. So these are the sort of areas that people are coming into and the Internet of Things and all that. I could see a data logging type structure. It's just relied upon, and there's very little legal element to it. The minute that I start to promise future actions, then I think we get into the, the contract area, which I find, um, frankly, a lot more difficult. But I do think it's a wider issue. We're starting to see, I think, more uh, more concern about about the use by software providers, exclusionary clauses, that it doesn't really matter what I say the software does. If it doesn't do it, it's your problem. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this type of, you know, where is the liability on this? We've just been in such a rapidly evolving environment in IT over the last 40 years that these issues have been swept under the carpet. But they've gone from, you know, being kind of nice information to have, to business critical, to suddenly payment critical, to financial stability and commercial and global economic stability critical. Um, and I, I, I can't see that it's going to stay this way for very long. So shifting gears a little bit to what um, mutual distributed ledgers can do, a lot of the focus, the public focus, and in the news has been on public ledgers and cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. Uh, in your responsibility without Power Report, one gets the impression, although you don't, I don't, wouldn't say you explicitly say this, that you see more opportunity for private uses of, uh, of blockchain than public, and for uses other than cryptocurrency, things like smart contracts. So is that? Am I right about your thinking? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think one of the one of the difficulties in the space is it's been discovered through cryptocurrencies. So uh, some of the older work, I was speaking with Maury earlier, you know, we, we've been digging back into some of the history, and I think I've got some of the origins as early as the 1980s. Stanford University was doing some interesting and related work in the 90s. So it's not necessarily that new on the distributed ledger front. The mining is new, and it's quite interesting. We'll come on to that in a moment. And it's a bit as if you discovered paper through money. And I handed you a 20-pound note or a $20 note, and you said, wow, this is amazing, and look, I can write on it. Uh, I could use this to send messages to people. Okay. Well, in fact, there's a small problem with it. If I could just get rid of all of the uh, security stuff here, the, the silver strip and the hologram, and I don't know why the paper's so expensive. I could get some cheaper paper. By the way, it's a really terrible size. So it'd be nice if it was a bit bigger, kind of. You know, an A4 sheet of paper. Wow, it's amazing. It really makes a good, a good, a good letter. Um, and that's really what we've been seeing here is that people had understood that paper existed in this space. And that's the distributed ledger bit. Um, what I find interesting though is that when people are looking at this, then, then you begin to see the power. If you think about it as kind of document exchange, identity exchange and agreement exchange, the payment's only one element of that. And again, I would ask you, just think about a typical payment. What are all the other bits of communication that surround it? The contract, the emails, all that. And all of these cost you money as well. And then a banker comes in and says, I'm going to save you money on the payment. Well, they're not, they're not knocking 15% off the payment. What they're saying is the payment would have cost you $10, and now I can knock it down to 5 whether the payment is for a dollar or a million dollars. So um, I then, as a business person, look at it and say, well, I've been trying to move a ship. I've got 40, 80, 120 documents going to customs agents and all that. On average, they're costing me 20 bucks or so. 
and at the end there may be three payments. And then the banker comes in and says, wow, I can save you $15 on that. Not really that exciting, is it? So I think these huge areas, and I'll give you just one simple example. In clinical trials, we're doing a lot of clinical trials. For two years, we've been running clinical trial systems for both U.S. Uh, and U.K. Uh, clinicians. You know, we're doing 50, 60,000 transactions a day. Handily, it's a boring area, very, very boring and dull and unseen. But it's the same way all those emails are unseen. People get too excited about payments. So um, moving away from the low-tech of paper, and it's, it's nice for the CyberWall podcast to go low-tech, um, probably the biggest application that has been in the news lately uh, or the biggest phenomenon is initial coin offerings. Alan, I know you had some questions about that. Yeah, so I'm curious, you know, there's been a lot of activity. Initial coin offerings kind of sprang onto the scene after the DAO incident, the kind of the failure of the DAO as a a cybersecurity uh, matter was kind of the success of the model of the smart contract as um, as kind of uh, token governance token or, or participation Alan, can, token. Can, can I just break in to, to talk about initial coin offerings so that everybody understands it? Because sure. my understanding would be people looked at Bitcoin and Ethereum and said, wow, the guys who make the most money are the people who produce the first coins w- w- with no effort at all, and they just keep that, and then everybody else has to put effort in and uh, give value to the coins. So the best possible place to be with uh, any of these digital currencies is the guy who invents it and keeps the first part for himself. Uh, and that has led to this boom in, in initial coin offerings. Everybody's inventing a new currency and hoping that they can keep enough money and get a bunch of other people to, to, to give it value that retroactively turns them into billionaires. Is that fair? That's that's a good description of a perspective on the process. Obviously there's other perspectives, but yes, there's a cert there at root there is a an ecosystem growing up around the idea of creating crypto tokens based on a blockchain protocol um, and using the capture of the initial Invest, you know, investment or purchase of those tokens, uh, either for the creation of some type of ecosystem that's going to have continuing value over time, um, or for the taking of the of the initial uh, money that's gone in, and that's what a lot of the regulatory action has looked at lately as these things exploded from one or two or three experiments to now hundreds uh, of them is. You know, what if this is actually an effort to create useful, usable contributions and ecosystems where tokens are replacing other more cumbersome processes and what's just pump and dump schemes or just basic garden variety securities fraud? Um, That's the uh, 64 Ponzi question, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The 64 uh, Baker coin question. (laughs) Yes. Um, Stand by for the ICO. Um, But I'm curious... uh, uh, Professor, your thought about, you know, do you see these as a viable mechanism for creating kind of microeconomic ecosystems that then either live in parallel to, uh, you know, to public blockchain systems like Bitcoin or Ethereum or link to them in some way through settlement processes? Uh, or is this all kind of only, as Stuart described, a kind of an effort to capture the idea of that, that if you launch a coin, um, 
that uh, that you can capture the the profit off that, and that that thus this is just a big bubble that's going to pop. Okay. Well, it might help to give your listeners a a, a few kind of reference facts. I mean, the first is there are somewhere between one thousand and two hundred. Uh, sorry, 1,000 and 2,000 active uh, cryptocurrencies out there in some form. There are also several hundred that have gone bust. Uh, and the reason is it's very easy to clone uh, the three leading contenders, Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Ripple. There's a subtlety to Ethereum, in fact, that you can build a coin in Ethereum uh, that's new, which is which, which is quite interesting. Second thing is the explosion just this year. Uh, time last year, Bitcoin was trading at $600. It's now today about $4,200. Um, it's interesting as well. The total market capitalization of all of the coins at the beginning of the year was about $25 billion. It's now over $150 billion. But then we move into the ICOs, and we've had $4 billion issued in the last seven months, which I think is fascinating. So these aren't the values of the coins. This is what's been paid for the initial round of the coins. I think there are three different ways in which these ICOs are working. Um, an initial coin offering, uh, like all the terminology in this space, causes some problems, and people can get quite uptight about it. But um, the first example is probably Bitcoin itself, where you offered energy in return for a coin. The energy you spent in mining helped get the system going, and that, that got you coins if you were in that, in that cartel. The second thing that you had was uh, initial rounds. So we've seen things like, for example, I picked on the Cardano Foundation, or DOS coin, both I hasten to add clients of mine. Um, in both cases, what they said was, give us a lot of money and then we will go and build a coin. And now I think we're seeing some interesting variations on that, which become a little bit closer to shares, almost, where people are sort of saying, well, you'll get rights of various forms in this, whereas the, the previous ones gave you effectively no rights except the use of a, a virtual number, a virtual element with a number, i.e. A, a token. So we're seeing we're seeing an evolution here. Um, I think the evolution is interesting. One might argue it shows how stymied the current markets are in terms of both innovation and cost of, of issue. But you're absolutely right, and we'll come on to that in a second, you know, that this is actually a very dangerous area for people. You know, no surprise that there's one coin out there called Ponzi coin. Uh, is it being actually the most honest coin on the market? I don't know. What about regulation? I mean, the China announced this week that no no more ICOs in China. Now, Chinese uh, could use offshore accounts, but they've asked some of the ICOs that have happened there to give the money back. Is that going to uh, put a damper on the market? Well, certainly going to put a damper on the market. And we've seen the market react, for example, to news uh, a few months ago of Japan looking more favorably, not necessarily on ICOs, but on coins. I personally um, believe that this is a bubble. It's gone exponential, and we all know exponentials come. It's just calling it. Um, for your listeners, I mean, I have a fraction of a Bitcoin just so I can show that I know how the system works. Uh, I have no investments whatsoever in any other ICOs. Am I wrong? Well, I think there's a genuine differential uh, asymmetric investment strategy that says having a coin, each one of these coins as they come out, might be insignificant to you. It might have some large upside. But that's not necessarily a, a raging investment strategy. Um, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, it says, well, you know, it's it's very definitely, um, th there's just too many of them for what's out there and what's needed. I mean, these are just virtual elements. The other exponential I, I point out to your listeners and readers is this concept that constantly bothers me, which is the energy consumption of these coin systems. 
So Bitcoin is consuming somewhere between half and all of the energy consumption of Ireland. Uh, and that, again, is just an exponential that can't work, especially when you're only doing a few hundred thousand transactions a day. So if that became a global system and you win the World Cup, <laughs> uh, just putting the people in the stadium will bring the global payment system down. And that doesn't, I think, make a lot of sense. And that also leads to high imputed energy cost per transaction. Uh, in Bitcoin's case, that's somewhere around the $5 mark is an estimate in Ethereum is about $10. The problem again with that is at the moment with all the speculation going on, those costs aren't being reflected, but they will come home to roost. Somebody has to pay for that 5 or $10 worth of energy. Now, I know many people say, well, it's uh, Chinese mining farms where they don't have to pay for it, but nevertheless, somebody is paying for that energy and that will come home to roost. So we've got a lot of change in this space. Um, but it is interesting to note, um, if you do go back uh, five years, strangely, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Ripple uh, sorry, Bitcoin and Ripple, and now Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Ripple are very stable in their relative positions. I find that intriguing, too. Well, there's um, a lot to talk about on this. I, I personally am a strong, strongly agree that there is a bubble element here, which is uh, destined to pop, and, and but I'm interested in what the future applications will be. We'll try to stay roughly within our hour that we for the podcast. So we like to give our listeners a chance to talk about what they're doing. I know you have a big project called Distributed Futures, um, sponsored by the Cardano Foundation, I believe, on others, yeah. uh, on um, on mutual distributed ledgers. Can can you tell us about the distributed uh, distributed futures program and? Anything else of interest oh, that's, sure. that's your a particular interest that you're doing? Well, that's very kind. Um, I, I might point out to your listeners, just about everything we do is free online at www.longfinance.net. We have a host of r- reports up there that we've been doing over many years, as was alluded to earlier. Um, distributed Futures is an attempt to look quite widely at not just the technical, but also the social, political, and economic aspects of distributed ledgers. And well beyond cryptocurrencies, you know, as you can tell, if I'm not holding on to cryptocurrencies, uh, then I, I clearly am not that interested in that space. Um, we will be having, for those of your listeners in London, on the 23rd of October, we'll actually have a, an ICO trade fair at Insurance Hall. This is free. and In fact, almost all of our events are free. Uh, and we're looking forward this year to research in a variety of areas. We've got some papers coming out in the next few months on geostamping. If you think that a lot of these ledgers about time stamping, how do you actually stamp location? Uh, a lot of work is going into money supply algorithms and simulating them. A lot of the innovation in this space, once you say that the ledger is fixed, becomes the money supply algorithm. We're looking at what happens after quantum computing, which forms a, a legitimate threat for this. We're looking at insurance-linked securities and indices. We're going to be looking clearly at identity systems, which I see as one of the very big application areas well outside of payments and yet related to them, uh, trade systems and green ledgers. So we have a very full research program. Uh, again, the research is open and people are uh, welcome to contribute to it. And, you know, whatever I say about ICOs or mutual distributed ledgers or smart ledgers and smart contracts, I've got to say, it is a heck of a lot of fun. <laughs> well, agreed with that. We all like to have fun. Thank you so much for coming in today, Michael. And back over to you in D.C., Stuart. All right. Thanks, uh, Maury. That was great. And Professor Minnelli, thank you as well. Uh, it is I, it was fascinating how much uh, planetary warming we're doing to pursue this uh, utterly arbitrary uh, um, uh, calculation. Uh, and, um, you know, 
uh, uh, Nakamoto had been smarter about this, he would have said, you only get the win, you get the coin if you find an asteroid that's going to come within 500 miles of the Earth. Uh, that would be a genuinely useful thing that people would be doing. That is also a very hard computational problem. Uh, I'd be much happier if that's what they were burning all those MIPS to uh, to find. Um, thanks to uh, Professor Minnelli. Thanks to Maury Shank. Thanks to uh, Paul Rosenzweig and Alan Cohn. This has been episode 177 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, remember, if you've got somebody to suggest that we interview, uh, send us their name uh, at cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com and uh, if they come on the program we'll send you one of our highly coveted cyberlaw podcast mugs uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of people coming up uh, in the next uh, month or so Jeanette Manfra who is the highest ranking maybe the last uh, uh, cyber security uh, official standing at DHS uh, uh, talking about uh, uh, cyber security issues John uh, John Yu and Jeremy Rabkin uh, Jeremy back uh, for um, a discussion of their upcoming book on uh, cyber robots and space weapons. It's just, uh, you know, uh, really, I, it, it feels as though the Stepto Cyber Law podcast is slowly devolving into Calvin and Hobbes. Um, a, and uh, uh, in addition, we've gotten a, a host of other folks who have agreed to uh, appear on the program. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, I'm doing a Georgia Tech program on attribution. Uh, and we're uh, going to post that as an interview. Uh, Richard Danzig has a great uh, uh, think piece out on uh, where technology is taking us and what we ought to do about it uh, from a DOD perspective. Uh, uh, and then, as I mentioned, November 7, mark your calendar, U.S. elections and cybersecurity special event, uh, you're invited to come. Uh, and if you want to RSVP, use that same address. Uh, uh, so, uh, thanks to everyone who participated, um, uh, and uh, uh, this has been the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, uh, we hope you'll join us in future as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 